New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore the indigenous contribution to eco-psychology. With me is Dr. Glenn Aparicio Perry, who is the author of Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. He is also the director of the Circle for Original Thinking based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's an honor to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, you know, you began your work uh, as a student of my old good friend and your dear colleague, Danny Alford Moonhawk, as mm -hmm. he was known, a, a student of Native American languages, oh, yes. and uh, the person who began to organize meetings of Native American elders with uh, theoretical physicists, with quantum physicists, to see what they have to say to each other. Yeah, well, Moonhawk was, it was very important to him in his life, those gatherings. Mm -hmm. um, he was invited by his mentor, which was Sagesh Youngblood Henderson, who is head of the Law Center in Saskatoon. And Sagesh, I mean, he came to the class that Moonhawk was teaching us in 1983 in mm -hmm. anthropological linguistics. And then it was in 1992 that Leroy Little Bear and David Pede brought together this gathering and Moonhawk was invited. Moonhawk was an important part and there were other linguists too. They were considered an important kind of translator really between the quantum physicists and the indigenous elders. Mm -hmm. And it really meant a lot to Moonhawk. It touched yeah. his heart. And then, and then he was visiting me after I had started the Seed Institute in 1996. In Albuquerque. In Albuquerque. Yes. And we were sitting outside in my back porch looking at the Sandia Mountains. And he was smoking his pipe, as he often did. Mm -hmm. And out came the pipe dream. And Moonhawk said, Glenn, why don't we bring the dialogues to Albuquerque? Mm -hmm. And I, I instantly agreed and, you know, that we talked a little bit about, you know, if we get a grant or not a grant. I said, well, it doesn't matter. Let's invite an outer circle because it's a principle of quantum physics. The outer circle or, or the observer affects the observed. Mm -hmm. So we brought an outer circle together with an inner circle. And there was an opening to the east of both circles with the idea being that thought moves through the room and infuse the dialogue and dialogue just Wow, I was so happy that Moonhawk suggested that because it turned out that that completely shifted my life. Mm -hmm. And it was the, it was the reason why the book, Original Thinking, was given yeah. birth. We should probably make clear for our viewers right at the outset that you are not uh, of Native American ancestry. I am not, but I am tribal. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, on uh, my father's mother's side, um, Basque. So mm -hmm. really the Basque are indigenous from Europe. My father's father's side is Aragon, Spanish. My mother's side is Jewish, mm -hmm. you know, and. It's a tribal culture. It's a tribal culture, yeah. Right. So, so, you know, my father made his way. The, the, the story is actually my grandmother, the Basque grandmother, she walked 300 miles and got uh, to Barcelona. She got a job as a chef's attendant. And when that chef moved to New York City, she was thought of highly enough. So, she, so the chef took her with 
Obviously. him. And that's how uh, my father ended up getting to New York City. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I interviewed Moonhawk uh, oh. when he was alive. Mm. He was a lovely man, a good friend of mine. Yeah. And uh, he talked about how uh, what struck him about the languages of the Native mm. Americans and what they seemed to have in common with the quantum physicists during mm. these dialogues was the notion of process. That yeah. uh, the, in the English language, we have many nouns, but in Native languages, almost everything is a verb. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and one of the reasons why Leroy was interested in approaching David Bohm was because of that. He noticed that Bohm had actually realized that the English language was not uh, equal, not up to the task of describing the quantum realm, which was all process and relationship. We're talking about one of the great quantum physicists, David Bohm. Yes, who yes. Who participated in these dialogues. Yes, as the junior colleague of Einstein. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and so Bohm, you know, wanted to create his own language. And he mm -hmm. called it the real mode, or actually not a language, but a mode of English, the after the Greek, R-H-E-O, Rio. Mm -hmm. And it was basically like adding I-N-G to the end of everything. And that made, you know, we were just, you verb everything. And, and Leroy used to poke fun and do that in the dialogues. He would say, okay, okay, Jeff, you're going to be Jeffing now, and you're going to be Glenning, you know, and everybody everybody was verbing mm -hmm. themselves, just like Bucky Fuller used to talk about, you know, I am not a noun, I seem to be a verb. Yes. You know, so we did that, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we understood that, I think, in this, in this dialogue circle, which was so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about time. Mm. To to begin with, uh, I love your story about how we normally think of time as the future being ahead of us and the mm. past being behind us, and yet mm. the Native American elders with whom you worked saw it just the opposite. Well, you know, I, I learned from Moonhawk that the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks, we don't have to go to indigenous culture right away, so for the ancient mm -hmm. Greeks... The past was ahead of them because mm -hmm. it had already manifested. Yeah. And so where they had eyes to see, the future was behind them, which was enveloping them from behind. It's not really a line, but the future was all behind. A little like Carlos Castaneda talks about death stalking us from behind. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the future is manifesting through us. Um, so, the ancient Greeks are very similar to today's Maori who talk in the same way, talking about the... It's the past that's in front of them where it's already manifest mm -hmm. and the future is behind. And even talking about yeah. front and back, I suppose, it's not normally adequate. presupposes linear thinking. And, and yes. yet, the indigenous people, are they don't think linearly the way we do, like a straight line. They don't see time as a straight line. That's right. Well, I'll just come out and say it. Uh -huh. I said it's... In my view, it's correct. Linear time is, is a complete illusion, which Einstein understood. You know, he would just mm -hmm. say it's just, albeit it's a very persistent illusion. Yeah. But it's a total illusion. Time does not happen as a line. So why are we so addicted to that? That's kind of the things that I write about in the book, Original mm -hmm. Thinking. Um, and a lot of it is just, it's not just convention. Um, some of it has been, uh, uh, come about because of all kinds of means in the culture that, that 
that reinforce that. And one yeah. of them is in art, you know, mm -hmm. is in, in, in linear perspective in art. Mm -hmm. So that happened exactly 600 years ago, 1415. Bruno Shelley, you know, pokes a hole in a painting. He puts a mirror behind it and he wants to be as the best of intent. He wants to paint the world as God saw the world. He wants to create a 3D illusion on a 2D canvas. Mm -hmm. um, and what he, all he's done is create an illusion. I mean, yeah. because we really have two, you know, our view of the world could be immersive. We have two moving and very watery eyes. And that's how we really are perceiving the world. And yet, if you think about linear perspective, it's a view from one stationary eye, mm -hmm. you know, and it projects these lines onto the future. And that's what you're talking about. That's why we started to believe that the future was ahead of us. And then, and then, Jeff, we, we took the extra step of the future is ahead of us. Now we're going to try to predict and control it. And that's really the advent of Western science mm -hmm. that really came about in the Renaissance. It's also the advent even of the simplest things, just like a clock, um, because before then we really weren't using clocks. We were using astrolabes and we were using um, sundials, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but we kept moving and, you know, we keep moving toward further and further abstraction from the natural world to to describe time. We've made time our own. Mm -hmm. We've created this complete fiction time and we're now living our life by it. We're dominated by it, you might say. We're all colonized by time. It particularly, you know, it's not like we just colonized indigenous people. We colonized ourselves first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's the problem. Well, when you yeah. talk about perspective yeah. in, in art, one of the things that perspective, I suppose, reinforces is the idea that I am separate from the rest of the world. And yes. I suppose uh, if we were to get to the very fundamental ground of indigenous thinking around the world and mystical thinking in every culture around the world, it's that uh, this separation is an illusion. We are connected with everything. That's right. Oh, he couldn't say it, said it better. You know, so it's very ironic that what comes after, you know, in the, in the, in the Renaissance is the Enlightenment. And then we just, we start to describe people that are enlightened as having this, the penetrating rational thought that penetrates the world. When, of course, if you're talking to a Vedic sage or something, someone from India, we're talking about enlightenment completely differently, just like you spoke of as enlightenment breaking those veils of illusion that, that pretend that we're separate from the world. Mm -hmm. We become interconnected with everything. And that's mm -hmm. actually, that's really more enlightenment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, since you've uh, brought up the notion of the Vedas. And okay. Uh, and since I introduced our program as having to do with indigenous thought, uh, one of the points you seem to be making is that there is a commonality, not only amongst the different indigenous people, but amongst yeah. uh, indigenous people around the world, the, the, the animistic and shamanistic worldviews that they hold is in many ways uh, corresponds with and is sympathetic with the mystical viewpoints of Asian religions, for example. Yes. 
mean, we really truly are interconnected with everything. We couldn't exist without the trees that are giving out the breath of life that we're giving back to them in a sacred circle. We couldn't exist without the sun that's giving us light, life, and energy. We could not exist without the elements, you know. So this is something indigenous people are talking about, but I think it's very well understood in ancient Greek culture, mm -hmm. in our own traditions. We used to understand that the air wasn't empty, the air was aware, the air was pneuma, the air was ruach, the air was prana, the air, whatever These word you use. These are all words for spirit. Life, yeah, and, energy. And when you yeah. say life, yeah. I think you are really speaking about consciousness. Yes, itself. Uh, yes. Everything is alive, everything is conscious, everything is in relationship with us. Yes. You know, so with the Buddha talking about thought and consciousness arising, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that is true. The Western worldview that went down the road, and you've investigated all this stuff in your, you know, over the course of many, many decades, but, but, you know, when you, when, when in the West, when we tried to pinpoint the, um, the arrival of consciousness, when did consciousness come in? Some epiphenomenon of brain yeah. or something, mm -hmm. some, some more evolved, complex critters. That's kind of the wrong path, I would say, because it's always there. At every so, level. Yeah. I mean, one of the dialogue questions Leroy Littlebear asked once was, how did the first awareness arise? And, uh, um, and, and then, you know, while we were dialoguing that, that, uh, later that day, it kind of slipped from first to original. Mm -hmm. How did the original awareness arise? And it made all the difference to me because mm -hmm. first I start thinking of lines. I start thinking of linear. I start, and that's, you know, an obsession in Western culture. We're obsessed with when the universe began. Yeah. And really, does it really matter whether we're talking about, you know, 14 billion years ago or whether we're talking about 6,000 years ago or... Well, in, in the yeah. Western Bible... Yeah. Yeah. Created by, yeah. you know, the, some of the earliest of written languages, we say, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I know right. the Catholic Church embraced the Big Bang Theory as being yeah. consistent with the biblical interpretation of creation. But there's another view, isn't there? Well, there sure is. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing now because I'm thinking of Paula Gunn Allen, you know, my, one of my dear ancestors, but, but she was once talking about, right, right with Brian Swim was at a dialogue circle. She was talking about, well, where I come from, God is a woman. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I can't get behind this Big Bang Theory. It seems like a male ejaculatory fantasy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, kaboom, wow, <laughs> orgasm, great, great, everything's moving out. But, you know, if, it, but, you know, what man would be satisfied with just one? Mm -hmm. You know, he would come back. So, I mean, actually, there's a lot of physicists that are talking about not one Big Bang. They're mm -hmm. talking about that that may be part of this yeah. this this creation, but it happens multiple times. The it's, cosmos is much larger than just our 14 billion year old uh, yeah. universe. Well, I don't believe that it's the beginning of the universe. I mean, uh -huh. Grandfather Leon Secretaro said to me once, you know, Glenn, I don't think I know the universe has always been here. You know, and I really, you know, he was always right. I mean, he died September 28th of, uh, of the year, uh, 2008. And he told me exactly what was going to happen with the U.S. economy two days before he died. Mm -hmm. He said the whole economy is going to be reset. 
And it was, you know, like two, three months later, the cover of Newsweek said, reset. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. he knew, he knew. And in fact, he, he was not the slightest bit arrogant. Don't get me wrong, but he would, he would say, and toward the end of his life that the word prophecy was not an adequate word because it implies some kind of guess or forecast mm -hmm. where um, if you know, you know, you know, and that's, it's a very uh, different thing. It, I uh, gather that you, if you know, you know means that you're one with. Something like that. Uh -huh. I mean, I go to, and I know you can relate to this, I go off into dreams. That's, mm -hmm. They've been very important to me. I think what happens in the dream state is a diff is a state that's very it's probably just a balancing for our waking state which is which has been conditioned to believe in linear time and things like this but in our dream state we're immersed in the landscape we're so immersed in it that everything in a dream this is the way I experience it is alive it's 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 numinous it's it's vibrating you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not in a dream, uh, a abstract observer observing over here. Mm -hmm. I think we have a tendency, and I'm, I can't say for certain because I'm just going from my own experience. Mm -hmm. So I would say for myself, even for myself, when I wake up, I might want to insert myself into the dream in a certain way that I really wasn't like that in the dream. I was just immersed in it. Mm -hmm. The dream consciousness is immersive. This is another way of being in the world. There are people that can be immersed in the world while they're awake. Those are close to enlightened people, actually, you know, because they are not, it doesn't mean they can't utilize objective consciousness or logic when they need to, but they first feel the unfolding of nature through them and and then they only employ logic or abstract thought for limited purposes. This, this I think, is the proper use mm -hmm. of abstract thought. May I quote you one thing? My All favorite right. quote yes. in the world from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, you know, you first have an... Oh, he said, all our progress is an unfolding. You first have an instinct, then an opinion, then a knowledge, as the tree is root, bud, and fruit. So trust your instinct to the end though you can render no reason. It is vain to hurry it. By trusting it to the end, it shall ripen into truth, and you shall know why you believe. That's what you mean by original thought. That is what I mean by original thought, and that is what I mean by a successful marriage, a successful coming together of rational thought, with intuition, gut instinct, because our guts, our instincts are what connect us to nature. We're too quickly jumping to the rational realm, forgetting what the ancient Greeks understood, that rational comes from ratio, or it's about proportion. It's about a living relationship between things. Mm -hmm. That's the real meaning of rational. And so there's nothing wrong with rational mm -hmm. thought. In fact, it's very, very beautiful if it's in the right proportion. That's what the Greeks felt. I still feel that today. Uh -huh. yeah. So when you use the phrase, as you do in your book title, original thinking, it has to do not with new thinking, but mm -hmm. with being in touch with our origin. Yeah. Well, it has more to do with origin as a place, because 
you you talked about the dialogues that yeah. that uh, the former uh, I was the head of Seed Institute. Mm-hmm. We organized these dialogues with indigenous elders and Western linguists and and uh, Western scientists, primarily quantum physicists. Mm-hmm. And the very first question Leroy Lilber asked was, "Is it possible to come up with an original thought?" And that's when you know I realized that the very word "original" had two meanings. Mm-hmm. You know, for the Western people in the room, including our mutual friend Moonhawk, mm-hmm. tried to think of something brand new that had never been said before or done before, mm-hmm. and he went right there. Yeah, and he went to th- he went to try to think of something novel, which mm-hmm. is a very hard thing to do. Yeah, where the indigenous people took the question completely differently as an invitation to connect with original as origin. They went to the root of the word origin as a place and a place of ever present regeneration. Or as Grandfather Leon said, a place of original instructions for how to live on the planet. And that made a lot of sense to me. Because, as you say, they don't have a sense of linear time and a beginning. So, origin isn't a static point in time. That's right. If you ask the Hopi or something about about their origin story, they're going to take you to the little Colorado River. They're going to take you to a place. They're not going to be even the least bit concerned about what date that was. That's not important. What's important is the place where they emerged in their story, you know, from another world underneath and came up into this Mm -hmm. world, which is as good a story as... I mean, the the Big Bang is just another story. Mm -hmm. It's a good story, but it's a story. Mm -hmm. You also focus on what does it mean to be human? Mm. Yes. Yes. Well, once we started to go down the path where we abstracted time, it was a very short uh, distance to beginning to believe that human beings were defined by being abstract and defined by being separate. But we actually became proud of it. We became proud that we were separate from nature. We were proud mm-hmm. that we didn't have to, you know, meet at a certain time or we didn't have to, uh, we, we became kind of full of ourselves so much so that we build homes, you know, right where there's going to be a flood or we, we can conquer nature. Doesn't matter. Yeah. We can, we can do anything. And, and there's the biblical belief that we have dominion over nature. Yeah, that's a, that's a very uh, complex one. I, I like to think that maybe in the best sense of it, mm-hmm. dominion could imply caretaking, but it certainly hasn't played out that way, yeah. has it? <laughs> but it implies yeah. a separation. A very much a separation and a superiority. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're, we're going to, we're going to uh, take care of, and we have been, you know, doing, uh, uh, intervening in the affairs of animals tremendously. I, I sometimes have funny conversations with people about this where they'll, they'll tell me, I remember once when I had two kittens born in my own home. It was such a beautiful experience. And I, you know, then I actually just happened to run across a woman who works in the animal humane movement or something. And I told her about this beautiful experience and she gave me a lecture. You know, she said, it's a zero, it's a zero sum game. There's only so many animals. And I said, hmm. I, I had to say to her, well, wait a minute. Are we as human beings allowed to determine whether all the, uh, how all the other animals can give or not give birth? <laughs> I just, it's just a different way of looking at it. I know she was good hearted, but 
But I don't think that we necessarily are supposed to be determining that for other animals. Yeah. Well, the very yeah. notion of eco-psychology, mm. as popularized by Theodore Rozak and many other people now, uh, is, is that we have to have a whole new sense of ourselves if we're ever going to get out of this ecological mess that we're creating. We're living in the midst of one of the uh, world's great ex mass extinctions that we are creating. I could not agree more. So, I, in my opinion, the, the most important thing that has to shift is that we have to remember the source of our consciousness, which is the elements of life. We have to reconnect with them, you know, and until we do that, we're going to continue to be othering the earth. Mm -hmm. And that's why we can drill for oil through water. But if we were thinking a little bit differently, if we were realizing we're 70% water, that water out there is us. We're connected to the water profoundly. We wouldn't be drilling for oil in it, would we? You know, and that's what I've been blessed to learn from indigenous peoples, particularly like the Hopi, who... That the body of the earth itself and the water is our body. Well, yes. And our thoughts come from that. Here, I can almost prove it to you. I can't really prove it to you, but, you know, in a Western sense. But look at the way we even speak about language. We speak about it as a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. We speak about mainstream thought. Yeah. We think, speak about underground thought. We speak about or we depict, cartoonists depict thought as a cloud. We talk about people with their head in the clouds. Yeah. Now we want to save information on the cloud. <laughs> what we really, what we want to have is a brainstorm, you know, and all of that, all of those words, all of those supposed metaphors, I would submit to you are not metaphors. It's actually, uh, the truth. That is how profoundly, intimately interconnected our consciousness is with the movement of water. See, we already know this about the tides, but it's also the hydrological cycle. We're connected with the movement of water because we are water beings. We're feeling that. And that's what I'm talking about with original thinking is that connection to our source of our consciousness. Does that make sense? That makes perfect mm. sense. Yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs> it does, Glenn. Thank you. And, uh, you're really hitting the nail on the head that this, this is a very profound understanding. I know, uh, your exposure to these in indigenous ideas changed your life, and I hope it will help, uh, to influence the lives of our viewers by sharing this. Thank you so much for being with me. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's an honor. And thank you for being with us. Be sure to check your listings for part two of our two-part series on the indigenous contribution to eco-psychology.